Welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast, where we are leading conversations in innovation and the global entrepreneurial mindset. In this podcast series, we are exploring the topic of women in technology and innovation, where we shine a spotlight on the remarkable women entrepreneurs, business and technology leaders who are changing the world through industry and innovation. My name is Samantha Walravens, and I'm an adjunct professor at Lehigh University as well as a journalist and an author with a passion for supporting and advancing women in their professional and personal lives. For those who don't know, the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center in San Francisco. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. Today, we are talking about key trends in technology from artificial intelligence to robotics to blockchain, where it's heading, and some of the risks and opportunities we have to look forward to. I just want to give a caveat before we start our discussion today that uh, the topic of emerging technologies, what's what's new and trendy in tech, is expansive. So we're not going to be able to cover every new technology trend that's available today or that's coming down the pipeline. Our hope is to touch on some of the biggest forces driving innovation. Um, so just to give us sort of a groundwork of what's interesting maybe areas we want to explore for our careers moving forward and um, some of the things to think about in a sort of ethical humanities focused way about the technologies that are coming down the pipeline. To talk about these issues of emerging tech, I have three women who are actually have very different backgrounds and experiences. Kak Wilhelm is a venture capitalist and she's now a partner with IVP, which is Institutional Venture Partners, a late-stage venture firm focused on growth companies. They have $7 billion of committed capital, and some of their investments include companies like Dropbox, Netflix, Snapchat, and Twitter. So, CAC, welcome to our class today. Thanks for having me. And next to CAC, we have... Kathleen Cavanaugh, who is a software engineer at Symbio, which develops artificial intelligence software that makes industrial robots more capable and effective. So we'll hear about the robotics industry, especially industrial automation from Kathleen. And Kathleen's a 2014 graduate of Princeton in mechanical engineering and 2018 master's from MIT. And then we also have Fiona McAvoy, originally from the UK, who is a technology ethics researcher and founder of You the Data. Fiona examines the use of technology, AI, and data in our society, and sort of the ethical issues around these emerging technologies. And she was named one of 30 women influencing AI in San Francisco by Rework. So we're excited to have you here, Fiona, to talk about these topics, these issues. So, um, Kak, I actually wanted to start with you. Uh, I want to get your perspective as a venture capitalist. And you've worked, you've invested both in uh, growth, large, you know, late stage companies, as well as earlier startups. What are some of the trends that you're seeing and that you're excited about in technology? Yeah, good question. I mean, expansive question, for sure. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think the key thing to keep in mind, um, different stages stages of venture, you're going to care about a lot of different things. So I used to be more focused on seed investing. At seed investing, you really are trying to predict the future. Um, so as a seed investor, you you are thinking about like, what is the cutting edge and what can you see before the next person's going to see? Um, when, I was, was I, when I was a seed investor, which was, you know, two years ago, um, it's very contemporaneous, contempor- contemporaneous to the time. So um, there was a lot of dis- discussion about cryptocurrencies, decentralized systems, blockchain. Um, so we, you know, I had, I had worked at Oracle and Cloudera, so I was sort of familiar with um, 
sort of database systems. And then all of a sudden it was this like decentralized databases. So we spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, <clears throat> now, you know, play it forward 2020, there's a lot less emphasis on, on blockchain, which is why, you know, at Seed Investing, you aren't expecting everything to make you money. Um, I didn't actually make any investments in that space, but that was a key focus. Um, AI broadly, I mean, I think AI can be tricky because, you know, Katie, for you, like the application of that artificial intelligence is really what matters. I think AI per se isn't really a category. That's like saying that statistics is a category when really like actuarials use math just as, you know, robotic systems engineers also use math. Mm -hmm. And today math is, con you know, math by another term is not statistics, it's artificial intelligence or machine learning or deep learning. Um, so I think we've been really careful to think about the applications of artificial intelligence and how they, how they influence the real world versus investing in companies that do AI. Um, but I would say if there's like sort of a last five years, what's the most impactful technology development, it definitely has been sort of machine learning coupled with deep learning, coupled with, you know, and what is that leading to? That's leading to, you know, the ability to do robotics effectively, the ability to like get closer to self-driving cars. And that's really just a function of, you know, if you can run more compute over more systems efficiently and quickly. Um, so that, like, I would say that's the key, like most interesting thing. Now, the thing to say is, you know, growth stage investing is very different from seed. So I told you seed is a lot about seeing the future. Growth is a lot more about like, what deck can I see before me that suggests that everything is working right now and we should just pay into it. So it's more like we're going to pay, you know, 500 million valuation or a billion dollar valuation for something that's working. And they're probably, you know, so that's not going to be cutting edge AI because that means that this company's like six years into their life cycle and, or, you know, maybe it's three years into their life cycle, but they didn't, they weren't just like, they didn't just evolve yesterday. And then um, Kathleen, can you talk a little bit about Symbio Robot Robotics and what you're doing and how the AI plays into, you're talking about you, you're in a warehouse with like robots all over the place. So yeah. tell me about what your company does and what you do. Yeah, we have a ton of robots. It's great. I think we have, at one point we had as many robots as engineers. We've hired a little bit more since then. But um, yeah, so what Symbio is trying to do is industrial robotics is a pretty kind of standardized field already. And all these different robot brands all have their own proprietary software languages, and it makes them very hard to program to do more complex tasks. So you'll see a lot of robots um, on the assembly line, but they'll be doing kind of very broad things, not the things that require more finesse in a lot of ways. So what Symbio's done is we've created a uh, platform in Python that allows us to interact with um, all different types of robots using the same sets of commands. And since we have this platform, we can then integrate additional sensors. So we can have cameras that are doing vision tracking, that are finding openings that we want to move the robot into. Uh, we have a force torque sensor. And what that does, it's like, oh, I feel, I feel a surface here. I probably shouldn't keep trying to move into that surface. And it also allows us to do more kind of complex tasks in that way. We can do things that require kind of fine motions because traditional robots are really good at saying, oh, I'm going to move from point A to point B and back to point A. But 
by bringing in feedback there, we're, and a, we're able to do more complex tasks. So that's kind of where we're coming at this from. We are a traditional kind of like, we do use a lot of traditional control theory, like you'd study in a mechanical engineering or an electrical engineering class. But what's really interesting is when you bridge that with a lot of these learning techniques, like we can then use kind of like, there's ways that you can kind of incorporate them together. That's very interesting. We also have certain applications where right now we are doing certain vision tracking with these uh, deep neural nets. And that's something that we, by doing that and doing that tracking, that allows us to do kind of the fine-grained motion um, with our force and torque sensors, like in addition. So we're kind of bringing these two types of ways of approaching problems together. Like, I think a lot of people think that you can just like throw AI at something and it will just solve the problem. <laughs> and that's just like not how we think about it. And I think we have a very interesting mix of people at the company who come from like more of a traditional like control theory background like I do and who come from a machine learning and AI background. So I think when you bring those together, you get some really powerful results too. Okay, now we're going to get into some of the ethical quandaries about regarding robots. So there's a big push in China now with COVID-19 to automate its manufacturing. It's been, this, I mean, this is not new. They've had their you know, 2025 Made in China campaign for a number of years. Um, so, and they estimate that, it's estimated that one robot can work a 24-hour shift that can replace three workers and costs in the range of 43 to $72,000. So it's a huge cost savings to be using robots. You're you know, replacing essentially three people with one robot that can work 24-7. So I guess my question is, and I want to ask Fiona this also, <laughs> are, should we be worried about robots taking over our jobs? Um, I mean, I want to preface this by saying I'm not a Luddite. I'm not, I don't want to smash technology <laughs> and things like that. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think we should be worried, but I think we need to temper that with the, the yeah, we, we know that there are things that robots, and, and no disrespect to what you're yeah. doing, which I think is amazing, but there are things that just quite frankly aren't going to be able to do in terms of dexterity in the near future. Oh, I fundamentally agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I, I, get, I get worried because you get this kind of, uh, media-driven, you know, dystopic future that's constantly being played back at us. And I think it scares people, and I'm really conscious not to scare people. I do think we need to plan, though, and we need to think about what's going to happen when inevitably certain, not necessarily jobs, but certain skills are replaced by automation. Uh, and and it's, look, it, it's, it's a big it's a big thing and I don't think anyone has a solution there. People talk about universal basic income and how do we kind of plug the gap as and when jobs do fall away. It's my it's my opinion that I think that there are jobs that we can't imagine now that will, will kind of fill those gaps uh, uh, and uh, I, I suspect that things will move a lot more slowly than the media predicts. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's something that we should be worrying about in advance, but I do emphasise the in advance. I don't think that we're going to turn around in five years and all of a sudden we have mass unemployment. I think it's going to happen a lot more slowly than that. So um, Stuart Russell, who is a professor of um, computer science and engineering at UC Berkeley, said that um, he said at some point a good deal of what we consider work will be done by machines, but I'd rather go to lunch with a human. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so we're, we haven't gotten to the point where we're going to replace our friendship, our friends with, um, with robots. Yeah, no, and I think, like, look... Um, We've created something very special, and I say we, the kind of royal we, you know, humanity has created something that's very special and very potent and can do fantastic things. 
we haven't created a, a, a brain. Like the organic brain does things that we still frankly don't understand, much less can we replicate it in any kind of uh, system. Uh, and I, th I think we kind of need to chill a little bit and think about like there's, there's, there's some really great things that can happen. But yeah, we're not going to be going to lunch and having uh, drinks with robots anytime soon, not in, in our lifetimes or I think personally ever. We, 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 st we struggle to understand consciousness as it is. Um, our brains do really quite fundamentally phenomenal things that, that nobody understands and I'm probably quite right in some ways that, that it is that way um, and so the idea that we might be able to replicate this uh, I think you know let's not conflate intelligence with consciousness let's not get away from ourselves you know. Mm -hmm. That's a big topic. Um, let's go let's get a little bit more into AI artificial intelligence and how it's helping us and CAC and Kathleen actually all three of you I'd love to hear about some of the companies that um, Kaki maybe you're working with that are um, using artificial intelligence to build out actually practical solutions for businesses um, what are you what are you into what's, what's exciting what should we know about I think what's most interesting is is now we're at the point where if you do something three times especially if you're a developer like that's considered you know one time too many and you may as well automate um, and so we're seeing that across you know software hardware vertical software all um, like many, many opportunities. I think the, the big phase, like from a venture capital perspective, like one of the big investment opportunities was that sort of when everything went from client server to SaaS. You know, that was a huge, you know, because there was the client server edition of everything and then everything went to software as a service and that was a huge investment opportunity. You know, so Salesforce is like the canonical example. I think the next big shift has been sort of this verticalization of software as a service. And that has been enabled really by AI and machine, you know, maybe machine learning, some AI. Um, but as you can automate some of the tasks that were once very manual within a given vertical. So it might be time tracking in a, you know, hourly workforce where that used to be, you know, uh, punch cards and, and timesheets and now it's just like you have a mobile app and everyone is connected and you know it's all um, it's manual but then in the back end it's very automated um, <clears throat> so we're seeing some of that also you know a lot in robotics and a lot in the physical world just um, with autonomous cars um, a lot of the computer vision um, a lot of the computer vision does get into the ethical of like you know all this facial recognition and when you are starting to collect databases of known bad, bad, known risky, known um, skeptical, you know, di different demographic types, and you have sort of this database of, of, of what's been labeled as like bad or risky, then, you know, great, you can do a lot of AI on that, but um, as the title of your organization suggests to you the data, like at what point is that, um, is that you know, going into the realm of, of, um, of naughty? Um, mm -hmm. But you'd be surprised, I mean, we're investors in Snap and Slack and GitHub and, you know, all these people in the background are using machine learning to some effect just to automate away some a lot of work that was once manual. Can you talk a little bit about AI as a service? Is that something that we're going to see? Where So, so companies don't have to hire data scientists and machine learning um, uh, yeah. developers so they can just like kind of have it in nice package modules. It sounds better than the, the reality. I think maybe four or five years ago, yes, you saw a lot of AI as a service, a lot of, um, you know, image tagging as a service and sort of like pre-built models. And the reality is, A, so much of that has been open sourced. 
So, so many models have been pre-trained on public data sets and they're just in the wild for people to use. So in terms of like- We've used some of them. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, we've definitely um, used some. And this whole idea of transfer learning. So you can train, you could train images on lung cancer and then you could use that, that data set and you could train against like heart disease. And, and so, um, so much of this isn't monetizable. Uh, just because it's been rendered open source or it's been incorporated into other programs. So I'd say our short answer is uh, we would much rather invest. Now this is invest because, you know, our key, key KPI is like making money for our investors. So it's, you know, value has to return to the venture investor, mm -hmm. not just value accrue to the universe. So we would much rather invest into a, like a system of engagement workflow tool that applies that, AI as a service that someone has built in-house to a, like a concrete problem. Without big data, without all the data that we have that where companies are collecting, the artificial intelligence is not really applicable, right? So can we talk a little bit, Fiona, I want to hear your thoughts on sort of the dangers of artificial intelligence and big data, especially, I mean, I know on a daily basis, I'll like, you know, buy outdoor patio furniture from Pottery Barn. And then the next thing you know, it, my phone, my computer, everything is there's like ads popping oh, up yeah. all over it to knows, buy yeah. this you know, <laughs> this outdoor table, you know? So they, they have my number, they have my data. So can you tell us about some of the dangers of like all the data that we're sharing and companies are using? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it's a huge topic uh, and I, I kind of don't want to do it a disservice, but yeah, in short, I think that um, we, we give a lot away, right? And, and and it's being used, it's being monetized in the way that you describe being kind of chased around the internet by, by advertisements. And I think for the most part, that's kind of okay. So long as it's things that we want and things that we need and things that are suited, it's it's kind of like getting a tailored suit, right? They take your measurements, very personal measurements, and they make you something that you like at the other end of it. Um, the thing that worries me is I think there's a certain amount of um, companies using our data and trying to almost trick us with it. So what I mean by that is um, they're there, there are, you know, psychologists and cognitive science experts working within a lot of these companies to learn how to kind of hijack our cognitive biases and lead us by the nose to certain selections that we might not have made otherwise. And, and that's done in a variety of different ways. Uh, and I think that the difficulty is that, that my interests and their interests sometimes aren't the same interests. And, and it worries me that having the, the power that they do in terms of coercion, and, and that's a strong word, so maybe I mean kind of marshalling or shepherding, but the, the powers that they have over me because they have all of this information and there's an imbalance there. They know more about me than I'll ever know, even about myself, all the emails I've sent, all the sites that I've visited, what I like and what I don't like, they have as a collective and they're able to use that in a way that suits their needs. And, and that worries me a little bit. You know, I, I love the internet. We all love living in the area that we're in. Convenience is, is a really important and fantastic thing that's freed us all from very boring, monotonous things. But I'm also conscious that it can be weaponized against us sometimes. And we need to um, be cautious. And a lot of people say we need to trust technology. And, and I would actually say quite the opposite. We need to learn to scrutinize the technologies that we use. So what kind of governance do we need? And I will open this to all three of you. What kind of governance do we need over, you know, the technology, the, the the big data, the artificial intelligence. I mean, who's who's? Re I mean, we've seen Mark Zuckerberg testify in front of Congress. Like, who is responsible for governing, monitoring the use of all of our personal data that's out there, maybe misusing it? 
I, I don't know if I can speak as much to the data side of things because I don't really work with like the personal data or those things. Like I'm working on physical systems, but I have had this conversation with some of my coworkers and um, other companies. I was at a conference yesterday, uh, Women Impact Tech in San Francisco. And one of the main things that I talked to some of these other companies who do robotics about is like, the companies who are creating this technology need to be thinking about it in an ethical way. And also us as engineers and scientists need to uh, advocate and make sure people are getting um, educated on what these technologies are because it's the only way we're going to have a proper way to kind of um, figure out what their reach should be. And is that the responsibility of the companies, the engineers? I mean, I know recently the, um, there was a facial recognition app called Clearview. Yeah, Clearview. Clearview. Yeah. yeah, that was taken off of the Apple store because the company was saying, oh, we're just using it to give data to law enforcement. And actually they were selling it to a number of different um, customers. So, you know, who's, I guess, whose responsibility is it to, to, you know, to over our data? And they had done something interesting. If you listen to the New York Times um, podcast on uh, Clearview, apparently they had removed certain journalists from there so you couldn't identify journalists through their thing. So they were in some ways like self-policing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was, uh, it was, a, they had the, the Daily had a great podcast on that. So in their way, they think they were trying to police themselves in some way, yeah. but it seems like if we have regulations for many other areas, like we have legal regulations, medical, all these other things, like the way this technology is evolving, we have to start thinking of it more critically. I mean, do we wait till after the fact when we're already stolen? I, mean, they they I guess they have, right? They, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm on Snap, so I guess they have my face, mm -hmm. uh -huh. right? Um, yeah, I'd say everything to date, you know, just put it to rest because, yeah, it's out there. Um, yeah. I mean, I do think we're probably, I mean, and Fiona, you probably know better than I do, but I think we're probably in the midst of the sea change. I mean, I think at the, you know, top end or high end, like you have the FTC and the DOJ coming down on, you know, the big four. Uh, and so I think top-down regulation is coming. I think, you know, the likes of GDPR and even CCPA, the California protection that just went into effect on Jan 1, um, you know, that is the right to be forgotten. You know, I could submit to NerdWallet that I'd like them to, you know, redact any information they have affiliated with CAC Wilhelm, and they need to have the wherewithal to be able to do that. Um, so I think you're going you're gonna to start seeing it from a regulatory now, I also think, you know, someone like Mark Benioff, I wish I remembered, he had a catchy term for what he, he wanted, um, he's pushing for, you know, there should be more um, uh, company-driven acknowledgement of, like, what is the right and wrong use of data, especially personal data. Um, you know, he's a luminary in the space. I wouldn't be surprised if he created a consortium amongst tech founders in the Bay Area, and some progress was made just toward a, like, you know, collective agreement of how, how customer data should be treated. So I think it's, um, you know, step one is acknowledge we have a problem. I think we're well into step one and maybe we're into the, like, what do we do about it? Yeah. So we're nowhere near like the, what they call the technology singularity where machines are superhuman and they're like at the outpace our intelligence, human intelligence. But there was something, Stuart Russell, who's a professor at UC Berkeley, he, he published a book called Human Compatible. And he talks about how we want to make sure that our intelligent machines fulfill our objectives as humans, not the machine's objectives. And he actually says that we need to have something like an FDA for algorithms. Like we need a governing body that says, okay, this is what's like, like, like the FDA says for our food. Like this is, this is something you can't put out to the public. It's, you know, it hasn't been tested, et cetera. So Fiona, what do you think about that kind of 
regulatory body for algorithms. Uh, yeah, I, I've actually changed my mind on this, and it, and you know what, it may change again. I, I used to think, no, you know, we, we can all handle this, you know, and and the reason I, I was of the idea that self policing would work was because you know what. Technologists are thoughtful, intelligent people. And when I speak at things, they come up afterwards and say, oh, I thought about this when I was developing or whatever. And you're like, wow, okay, these guys, they're not out to get us. They're creating things to, you know, for our convenience. And, uh, and, and so I was, I was kind of keen on the idea that it's something that we could kind of get a handle on. Um, when I say we, I mean in terms of the kind of the industry and, and the city we're sitting in now. But increasingly, I think there's just... Uh, you know, look, these they're, they're companies and they need to make profit and that's an important thing and I don't want to deride that, but the fact is sometimes that clashes against the need to have kind of ethical and responsible standards. Uh, and I was speaking actually to uh, somebody from a big tech company that we all kind of know and is one of the sort of flagship companies for the area and they're developing uh, or they're building a, a responsible kind of section of the business and they're really struggling for people to listen, to give them budget. And although, you know, the, the will or is there in principle, it, it kind of isn't there when it comes in, the, it gets in the way of other things. And I, I understand that. And that's why I think it, it probably has to be something like an FDA for algorithms. It probably has to be a third party that comes in and steps in to scrutinize some of the things that are going on. Kathleen, what do you I think, think it's more than just the algorithms. It's also the training data. Like, if, unless we're, like, lumping those together. Like, mm -hmm. the, it's a lot of the bias and systemic bias can it be propagated is. through, like, the images or the, like, um, text inputs that you're getting. I think we see these in a number of different examples. And, like, I was thinking about this in my own just work, and it's so easy when you're just we're looking at like picking up objects and so we're gathering some like training images for like what's the orientation of the object and that seems like such a silly problem uh, to think about bias in terms of but like you have lighting bias you have like what images and those are all kind of small and we just think oh i don't have a complete data set but when you're dealing with this on a broader scale not having a complete data set is introducing bias that can be harmful later Faces. on and yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly and there's been i there has been some movement toward actually giving better descriptions of what data sets were used to train things. People are starting to ask questions and want data sets to come with information about how it was collected and what in kind of the component parts of this data set. Well, that's interesting. And that goes back to, you know, who's who's collecting the data, who's inputting the data. The um, Google Images issue a couple of years ago when Google Images tagged Af you know, African-American mm -hmm. people oh. as gorillas. When your engineers and the people who are creating these training sets, these, da these data sets are not diverse, are not women, are not people of color, then you're having just white guys, you know, train the, 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 train the data sets and collect the data it's going to be a problem. Yeah, I mean, there was a good example of this. Um, I mean, I think what you raise is like, nothing's really objective. Because even if the yeah. orientation of a physical object in space isn't objective, and there's some subjective criteria like lighting or, you yeah. know, other bias, like then, you know, the real world is very subjective. Um, there was the case, I'm sure you guys tracked it on the um, Apple card and two, a married couple, male, female, both applied for the Apple card, which was, you know, fulfilled by Goldman. Um, and one of them got a credit limit. Of, the the man got the credit limit of two two twenty thousand dollars a month. And the the female got like a thousand. You know, um, I didn't follow it to the end. I don't know how it. But it you know, let's say that that was true. I mean, I think part of the problem is um, algorithms are black box. If that algorithm had just output that the re, you know the criteria was the following and the reason for the credit limit was X, like you know, explainable AI, like you can you can. 
uh, infer that logic and accept or deny. Um, but I think just on the face of it, it was like, man, 20,000, female, 1,000, same household, um, you know, both employed, et cetera, et cetera. And I, so I think some of this is before maybe regulatory body of algorithms, uh, I think there is a shift toward like, can you default open to a more explained outcome of whatever the algorithm is, um, the, the conclusion it's drawing? Because I think people are more willing to understand if they've been given a reason versus an totally answer. Mm-hmm. That's like um, Amazon. I don't know if you guys saw this, but Amazon had like a hiring for ha- hiring for Amazon. And they were like, so we've got 10 years of credentials. If we just plug it into the system, it's going to tell us what the the kind of ideal candidate for working at Amazon kind of looks like. Well, you know, 10 years at Amazon. Well, we, we know for starters that this is a guy, right? They're looking for mm-hmm. a guy. And actually they found that out latterly, which was, they were like, why? Because they graded them one to five and all of these kind of female candidates have been downgraded. And, and, and in fairness to them, they caught it. And then, so they, they made the, the changes. They kind of anonymized in the way that they, they should do in order to make sure that women weren't being downgraded. Uh, and in the end, they abandoned it because they said, you know what, there are so many things that you can infer mm-hmm. from details that isn't about your name or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's you're a member of a certain club that happens to be. And, and it was just finding, you know, finding those little things within resumes that said, like in a very subtle way this person is a female and kind of eliminating them because of that and it it just shows you you know even if you think you've got a system that is kind of beating the bias then there can be these tiny little incremental things that make the difference. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, deep fakes and Fiona you're talking about how you know there was a was it a video of Obama talking it wasn't even him talking it was like his it was all pasted together with someone else's voice and how that's an issue. Google Google Duplex in 2018 um, put out a um, new great news about this. But basically, it was a digital assistant using Google Assistant that was able to make phone calls to book appointments at restaurants and salons. And uh, the CEO is up there showing how wonderful this is. And the assistant basically sounded real. The assistant was using, you know, um, and uh, let me see, you know, really human sounding uh, intonation and words. So the person who on the other side of the call didn't realize it was an, a digital assistant. It was a robot. So I looked it up. Since then, they've actually changed that. So now when this technology, which is being, it's in use. Um, I saw it the other day when I was trying to book a dinner oh, reservation. Wow. Oh, did you? Yeah, I was trying to oh. book a dinner reservation at a place that didn't have online reservations. And it was like, and there was an option on Google, like, we can call for you. And I yeah, called, I called myself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, what did it sound like? Did it sound I, like a human? I didn't even try to use it. Okay. I, it, I just wanted to call myself. It, it was. Yeah. It felt a little too much. I feel like I can. I can call a restaurant. You can use like voice to call an Uber. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. what? Like we used to do when we called a taxi. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I think we've come full circle yeah. now. Yeah. But now, but now when the assistant calls. Restaurant, they say this is you know Google Assistant making a phone call mm. on behalf of you know Fiona McAvoy. Mm. Uh, we like to book a reservation for eight p.m. on Saturday, so they know it's a bot. But what Fiona and actually the three of you, if you could talk a little bit, and actually Kathleen, I'm interested in what you have to say. Working with AI and ro- actual robots, like, is this something that we really? Is this a big problem? Do we need to worry about like sort of the humanization of robots? I I work in an industrial space. So the way that we kind of think about humanization is I will say I I did work for a project for a major auto OEM. um, And it was one of those ones where like the way I thought about solving the problem with the robot is 
how a human would solve it. Like what type of feedback would a human use and things like that. But that's the extent to which I like to kind of humanize those things because humans can get this task done really well. So even there, I wasn't even using AI there. I was using traditional control techniques for that part because sometimes it's difficult to get enough training data with these robots because they can protective stop or there are other things that can keep you from being able to kind of get as full of a solution as you would want to. So I think I can, the problems I'm working on are kind of separated enough, but I think about like, how would a human solve this problem? And that was the extent to which I kind of have brought it into what, what I'm doing. I think thinking about things that way can give you good insights, but you have to realize like humans are good at maybe figuring this thing out, but a robot might be good at being able to, you know, apply more force than a human can eat, like at this configuration. And maybe we can take advantage of that. So figuring out where that balances. Any additional comments, Fiona, on the, so the I have lots of, of opinions on the human. I know you have. You've written a lot about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I think... Uh, I mean, I'm going to be frank. I think it's a, a really, really bad and, and needless idea. Uh, and I'm, I'm not worried about me. Uh, I'm worried about children and vulnerable members of our society who, are, quite frankly, might end up in a position where they're unable to recognise their own species and, and won't know a deceit from something that's uh, true. Uh, and that worries me, you know, like at the moment, you know, I, I, and I have a friend that, that, you know, makes these kind of deep fake type things. Uh, and they're, they're realistic. And he's like, the reason you can tell the difference is because you can't see a heartbeat. That's how apparently if you forensically examine them, that's how they know a deep fake from a real video image. Uh, but he's working on that. So, <laughs> uh, so, so that just worries me. And look, maybe I'm being alarmist and I'm, I'm probably guilty of that. But I just think we just maybe need to take a deep breath and think how useful are these things yeah. versus the, the harm that they can cause. And Thank you so much, CAC and Kathleen and Fiona, for joining us today and sharing your thoughts you. and your advice you. and insights about this huge topic um, we barely touched on, but it's great, great thoughts to get people thinking about next steps and what they want to do with their lives and careers and what to watch out for. So I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard today, remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu or follow us on Instagram at Lehigh Nasdaq Center. Thank you.